Hello, this is the Drucker Forum Report. I'm Peter Day, and this is a podcast about what's in the air and up for discussion at the ninth global Peter Drucker Forum. The forum takes place in Vienna in November, a conference inspired by the great management thinker, the late Professor Peter Drucker. This year's theme, Growth and Inclusive Prosperity. With me is one of the forum's main speakers, Professor Carlotta Perez. She's a writer, academic and consultant with a host of international affiliations and contacts. She's now Honorary Professor at the new Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose at University College London. Carlotta Perez's particular speciality is economic cycles, long cycles often lasting 50 years or so, which are so easily ignored by markets, politicians and business people who have much shorter time horizons. And of course, Carlotta Perez, technology has a lot to do with economic cycles, doesn't it? Absolutely. In fact, that's the way I I identify them. Uh, There have been five. Lots of people talk about four, about three, about two, depending on technology alone or on which country is the center. So you have the British century and the American century. And some other people just think of electricity or think of computers as the basis, or even now they're talking about artificial intelligence and all these things. But I look at the whole thing. I look at the relationship between technology, economics, institutions, society. So it's actually the process of assimilation, and you only identify a technological revolution when you see the whole thing, the infrastructures, the technologies, the, all the changes that they make, and something that I call a paradigm, a techno-economic paradigm, and even socio-institutional paradigm. So it's really a mass of changes brought about by the assimilation of a whole set of new technologies. This is the fifth we have had from the Industrial Revolution. And, and, and these are about patterns that repeat themselves in a predictable way or a familiar way? What? <laughs> well, there is recurrence and uniqueness. So we do have patterns that repeat themselves, but in a new, unique way each time. Because because the technologies are different, because the context is different, because the countries are different, because history, past history, will determine what the context is. But they always do the same thing. A first 20 years, 20 sometimes more, years of financial madness, installing the new paradigm, forcing the new ideas, experimenting in unfettered free markets with the new technologies. Then there is a bubble then there is a crash, and then we're in trouble like we are now. So the bubbles are very much part of this, aren't they? Every time there's been a huge bubble, there's been canal panic, there's been railway panic, there was the bearing crisis and several others, there was the crash of 29, and we've had two this time, the Nasdaq bubble and the 2008 collapse. Before we start sort of uh, teasing this apart, tell me how you got into this. Was it with dissatisfaction with... um, shorter-term views of economics and society, that you itch to, to, to widen it all the time. It was part of the way you thought about the world. The truth is that I was a Venezuelan, and my country depended on oil. And in the 1970s, we had what to everybody else was the oil crisis, and to us was the oil boom. And that boom didn't make any sense. Why didn't the U.S. stop us? 
You know, I mean, they were so powerful and we were so weak. So why were we able to do this? And then I thought, what does this do to technology? And I discovered that oil was at the core, at the heart of every single innovation from the 1920s onward. And, of course, during the boom in the 50s and 60s. But now if it was expensive, it was going to change everything. And I fell upon, by chance, microelectronics. Hey, this is going to be the change. This is going to change everything. And then I understood that it could be a revolution. And then I discovered Schumpeter. I discovered Kondratiev. Goodness, economics doesn't see this. And then that's how I got into it. It's fascinating that so many people are almost trapped inside their particular cycle, aren't they? It's the lean years and the uh, the fat years of the Bible, and much economics and much social life and political life uh, exists in those seven lean, seven fat years, doesn't it? There is a lot of that, and there is something even worse, which is that economics has divorced itself from history, from technology, from society, from institutions. It's completely abstract. It's like physics, but society is not like physics. And technologies are very different. So you can't just make believe or think that whatever formula you're applying to one period will apply to another. Periods are different. Even people who talk about the lean years and the fat years, even those do not understand that economics changes in one place or another, and that institutions especially change, that changes the context and therefore changes what the economic units do. Fascinating you started all this with a personal awareness of oil, because of course it's very possible to see energy, which eventually becomes oil, but wasn't all the time, as the absolute centerpiece of what's happened in the world over the last 250 years, from water power onwards and upwards? Well, that is true in a way, because it so happens that the first one was indeed water power, canals and so on, and, and the water wheels to, do the, to move the first machines. Then we had coal moving the steam engine for the railways. But the third surge, which was the first globalization, was not about cheap uh, something, which was cheap, coal, cheap energy, but it was about cheap steel. And that's what really moved the whole thing, including electricity, including the new steam engines, the steamships, the big bridges, the huge everything, all these fantastic things that cheap steel did. And then we have cheap oil. And now we don't have a cheap energy. We have cheap microelectronics and cheap information. So it's, not, it's always something cheap that allows both cheaper uh, you know, reducing costs of all sorts of things, but also increasing the productivity of everything, of capital goods, of information, of, of travel. Even if it was energy, you would move information faster and things faster. So it's quite a complicated thing, but when you come down to it, it's so clear. It's fascinating you talk about cheap steel. Here, where we are now, University College London, just across the road from Euston Station, This is where Henry Bessemer actually set up 
his first operation, out of which came eventually, and actually quite slowly, because uh, he, uh, it took about 100 years to absorb all the principles of Bessemer steelmaking into actually making steel, but he revolutionized steelmaking, and then took himself up to Sheffield, where there was the money from conventional industry to back the new cheap steelmaking. Yes, of course, but in fact, that was what made the U.S. and Germany be able to vie for predominance over Britain. They stole those ideas. They took his ideas, they added some more, they changed skill, but they also went into electricity and chemistry in a big way, whereas what the British did was to do globalization. They went and built all the railways, all the ports, uh, got steamships all the way to the southern hemisphere. They funded the U.S. A lot of the U.S. investment was funded by them. And then uh, the U.S. and Germany started uh, sort of vying for leadership. In the end, Germany fought the war, lost the war, and the U.S. made a leap. And that's how the U.S. got to be the leader in the next revolution. Zoom in for me to these stages of um, a cycle. Cycle about 50 years, something like that. Rather Kondratian, is it? Uh Yeah, 50, 60, but it could be any amount. This one is lasting longer than ever, and I think it's because we're living longer, because in fact, you only get to do the second period, which is the one where you really get the full deployment and full flourishing of a technological revolution, you only get to that point when the kids who played Nintendo are the ones who are the leaders, and we are holding them back. Because we are ageing, we are still uh, fit, and we want to go on holding on to power, the baby boomers, this, this ship, ocean liner that sailed through the world since the 50s, parting the waves all in its particular favour, including old age now. Absolutely. That is one of the things that's happening. So that's one of the reasons why this one is lasting longer. But anyway, you wanted me to tell you... Particularly the first stage of this. This is where we get to everything happening in a rush. And things do. The railway age was fast. The canal age was fast, wasn't it? They built canals in two or three years in Britain, didn't they? Yes, just like the internet. I mean, the internet itself, but basically... You know, we've only had the internet for 20 years. It's quite amazing, 23, 24 years, and we we can't live without it anymore. And people hurl money into that, don't they? Absolutely, but they do so because in the bubble, even though the investment in canals or in railways or in whatever it was in terms of, or in the big steamships and the railways all over the world, and then the highways and electricity and all that in the fourth and now in internet and telecoms, even though... They are not making money when they invest. They do make capital gains because a bubble is about increasing the value and the price, actually, of stocks in these things. And therefore, you get a bubble because people keep on getting more money because they know in the future it's going to make. But you know that Amazon didn't make a penny. You know, all the companies that were in that bubble were really not making dividends that justified what they – it was just future – Not what they were getting. But meanwhile, the infrastructure is being built with that capital, isn't it? The the wires, the railroads, the canals, all those are in place. And you make your money from the things added on to those, from the warehouses along the canals and the railways. That's what happens. The infrastructure doesn't itself make the money. And neither do, at first, the users. It's only after the collapse when you really get the 
proper flourishing of the whole thing. So the money you make is sort of financial money, not really profits. It's, it's financial profits, not production profits. The real golden age of production comes after the crash, after the recession that comes after the crash, and when government comes back in. And that is the secret of golden ages. The second half of, every, of the process of diffusion of every technological revolution is the golden age. So we had, well, of course, the first revolution, the Industrial Revolution, we had the Napoleonic Wars. So you had the, the, British, the Great British Leap, but that was in the middle of the war. But then we have the Victorian boom, then we have the Belle Epoque, then we have the post-war golden age, and in front of us we could have a global sustainable golden age because that's what has happened with each revolution, but only if governments do the right thing. And as far as I can see, there's no possibility at the moment. Now, that's a very unfashionable, even now, thing to say because we're in a muddle about the role of government, aren't we? We've had this market, ostensible market boom, market forces conquer the world, not just in the financial world, the business world, but political thought as well. And we're now in this awkward working out stage of something something else, you would argue, but we haven't got there yet. It's all very, very confused, what some people might call a turning point, but we don't know whether it is or not. <laughs> yes, I think it's a turning point, but let's hope it turns, because it might not. First thing I want to note is that the US and Germany, in a similar period to that, had enormous state intervention helping their business people. That was in the 1880s and the 1890s, 1870s, from, from the 1870s, actually, after the Franco-Prussian War in Germany and after the Civil War in the US. Just like China and India, or especially China and Japan, which also intervened, and Korea and Taiwan, all these countries that have made the leap, they all had very big state intervention. Now, now, a lot of people would uh, raise their eyebrows at the idea that America had widespread state intervention at the end of the 19th century. Well, they better read their history because there certainly was plenty. There was protection. There was funding. There was every uh, uh, training personnel free. The state did it for the companies, the land-grant universities. I mean, there is a huge amount of things that was done to help business at the time. And they better read their history, I tell you. Because, because business people tend to think that the great American idea was them doing it themselves, don't they? Well, they did it themselves with a lot of help. I mean, then we go on to then we go on to technology, and you see this extraordinary intervention of state funding in innovation in America through the National Institutes of Health, through DARPA and the military and things like that, which is a kind of secret source. It's almost unacknowledged by the business people now, so you get that phenomenon again, don't you? Yes, definitely. And the whole idea, I mean, if you think of it, without Internet, where would business be? And Internet was completely government-funded, not a little bit. It wasn't a public-private partnership. It was public money. So the Internet, which is at the core of the current revolution, was funded by government and promoted by government and finally handed over by government. So, but that's not my problem, because that is not the main thing that government does. In fact, during the first 20 or 30 years, government does some things, because we have to distinguish between 
the forging ahead countries, which were then U.S. and Germany and are now China, perhaps India, and all the ones that are already forged ahead like Korea, South Korea, and so on. No, no. There are two different periods. In the first period of every technological revolution, which, by the way, only happens if the previous revolution was more or less exhausted, which was the case with mass production. So those first 20 or 30 years are completely led by finance. And the state tends to step back and do only the things that are absolutely needed. And finance just takes over. And there is financialization and there is inequality and there is huge gains from finance, from experimenting free markets. And lots of companies go bust, but finance continues growing until finally there is the crash. So that first half is very much about finance and very much about the state doing as little as possible. And it seems very unfair because people get filthy rich and some people are grindingly poor as a result of being employed by the filthy rich, China. Well, precisely the whole idea of creative destruction is that you create all the new things associated with the new technology and you destroy all the old things associated with the old technology. That includes skills, people, industries, regions, all sorts of things. So all that destruction ends up creating the current populism if the state does nothing about it. Because even though the state does little or should do little at the beginning so that the markets can really do their job of experimenting with the new, they should take care of the victims. But the state decided not to do anything about the victims, actually increase the pain of the, of the victims. They allowed pain to spread. We're talking about now, here and now. We're talking about here and now, yes. No, yeah, other times it's the same. Really, the state hasn't really bothered very much. There aren't very good examples. Uh, because oh. the state has a very short-term view of this, so it doesn't see your long-term cycles, because nobody in power is going to be here in 50 years' time, and therefore we don't really have to worry about that. We have to fix the system as it is at the moment, and we tend to look at the future through... In McLuhan's words, Marshall McLuhan, the rearview mirror of the past, and it's a fairly recent past. Mm -hmm. That's one of the big problems, looking at the recent past. And I would say that something very tragic is happening, and it is that this whole idea of shareholder value as being what a company is supposed to fight for, is supposed to work for, is supposed to either innovate or not innovate or do stock buybacks or whatever it is, that has created a condition where even companies are not thinking long term. It used to be that you wanted that the company was the thing because the top people were interested in the future of the company because that was their future. But now it's just shareholders and they are now shareholders. So maybe we're risking not only the future of every society, but also the future of every company because of not innovating, not doing skills, not doing the right thing in companies. But it's much worse that the state is not doing it. Now, quite a lot of people at the Drucker Forum from the podium will say things like that, but they will not put it into the, the long-term, the century, two-century perspective that you do, because this is kind of familiar to you, and then you have the sharpness of the now added to the familiarity, don't you? Yes, you're right. And one of the problems that makes it even more difficult is that the state generally remains as the same state for the previous revolution. So that everything that our governments are doing today is so similar to what used to be done during the 50s and 60s that in fact they're obsolete. 
Imagine a company today doing the same as they did in the 50s and 60s, being organized in the same way, doing the same rules, having the same way of operating, having similar policies. It's crazy. Nobody would do that. That's completely old-fashioned, obsolete, rigid, bureaucratic, unbearable. And that is what the state is doing. They're not realizing that there is a revolution that should change them too. In fact, today's governments are organized exactly like old-style companies. That's tragic. Well, old-style companies, you say, but many companies are still organized around the principles of mass manufacturing with the hierarchies and the departments that were sort of brought about by the Fordist revolution of 1910, 2030, and they haven't really adapted to this amazing flow of information, for example, and the they see their new rivals being electronic, and they're trying to sort of add that on to the capital they have invested in traditional production, aren't they? I would say that the companies that are behaving like that are destined to be disrupted, and they should not survive because that's not the way things happen. Normally, the new things transform business, transform most businesses, but this is the first time that something as completely peculiar as cheap labor from China has ever been available. This enormous country was not part of the market system, and it was like a present given to companies so that they didn't have to change anymore. There was more transformation in many companies in the 1980s and 90s than there is now because they can use Chinese labor in the old style. There is something very interesting that I see happening, which is the difference between the mass-produced cheap goods and the not-so-mass-produced, truly niche products that are the most valuable. And I would say that there is a general trend towards making the cheap goods practically commodities, the, the standard things, and to produce them in more or less an assembly line, even though they have model changes and the what, but thousands and thousands of people making these things with very low salaries. And the more advanced countries trying to move towards the more valuable niche products. And in those cases, I cannot believe that they would use the old mass production methods. They need creativity. They need people to be skilled. They need people to participate and to feel part of the problem if they're really going to do niche products. But China is no longer happy with being the producer of the, just the factory of the world and just producing the cheap things. They're moving up very strongly and they're trying to force companies to give them the technology and they're training people like mad because they want to compete at the upper end and they want to get rid of those things to the other cheaper Asian countries that are around them. You're talking about um, labor in terms of people, but awful lot of people now are worried about the rise of the robots taking away all those jobs and uh, bringing more power back to the owners of capital. Well, the intriguing answer to that question and a lot more will come in the second part of this podcast interview with Professor Carlotta Perez, one of the principal speakers at the ninth Annual Global Peter Drucker Forum in Vienna in November. She teaches, among other places, at the London School of Economics, Tallinn University of Technology, the University of Sussex, and at University College London. She's the author of Technological Revolutions and Financial Capital, The Dynamics of Bubbles and Golden Ages. I'm Peter Day. This is the Drucker Forum Report. More podcasts, including Carlotta Perez Part 2, coming up soon. <laughs>